I was at home. I had just my first son was a month old. And I was enjoying maternity leave. Uh -huh. I was in Costa Rica. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. I was always a very good girl. Did everything by the book and obeyed my parents. And when I started working and I realized that things weren't happening the way I planned, I decided to take matters in my own hands and left. And when that happened, my dad and I had not talked for a while. And um, I had the TV on and Costa Rica, of course, it was not real time like the way it was watched here in the US, but very close to real time. And as I was watching and could not really comprehend what I was seeing, the phone rang. And to my surprise, it was my dad on the phone. And he said, are you watching? He was in Mexico. Mm. And I said, yes, I'm, you mean, you mean, yes, he said, that's what I mean. I said, yes, I'm watching. And he said, daughter, Jesus is coming soon. Mm. You need to come back. Mm. And I did. Amen. That's what I remember from that day. Mm. And that is what I wanted us to talk a little bit about today. Because when disasters happen, there's a special window that opens. And as a church, and especially in health, we need to be ready to let God's love shine through that window. Mm. Sometimes it's not too much time. So we need to be thinking about it before and be ready when it happens to be able to shine the light of hope, which is what people mostly need when disasters happen. So the hardest question that Christians have to answer is not does God exist, but why is this happening to me? Where is God when I'm suffering? It's a little bit more frustrating to believe in a God that is all-powerful and chooses not to act than it is to believe that a God does not exist, especially when there's innocence involved. When it's somebody bringing it upon themselves, well, you know, consequences. But when it, there's innocence involved, when you didn't trigger it, when you did everything the right way and still something happened, or it's a child, especially with children, the question always comes up, where is God? Where was God? Where is God when I'm suffering? I remember around the, um, ever so often we get reports of, of sexual abuse by priests to little boys. And I remember I was reading one of the many times it happened, the comments um, after the, the news report. And someone said, God is always watching. He will get his just reward. And then another commentator said, I was nine years old when I was abused by a priest, and I prayed every night. Doesn't God listen to nine-year-olds? Um, I don't know how many of you watched a video a couple weeks ago about a little Chinese girl two years old who was run over by two trucks, and 18 people walked or rode by or over her. And no one did anything until a lady that um, was taking out her garbage saw her, went to pick her up, and she just flopped over. She yelled for help, and that caught the mom's attention. Mom went and picked her up. They took her to the hospital. A couple days later, she passed away. So again, reading the comments of the news story, it is a very difficult video to watch, very difficult video to watch. One of the commentators said, God was asleep on his job. How could he let this happen? So for some reason, whenever a disaster happens, whether it's natural, we call it the hand of God, or it's man-made, God had nothing to do with these people running over the little girl. As human beings, we tend to attach the responsibility to God. God wasn't doing his job. 
This is an actual picture of the tsunami. The tsunami in 2000, 2001 in Indonesia that happened. So what did Jesus do? This is his mission statement. He stood up and said he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And when I was reading this for the who knows how many times, because we've all read it or heard it before, it struck me that a lot of the things here are emotional. He has he, healing the brokenhearted, liber, liberty to the captives, liberty to those who are oppressed. And for a long time when I thought about Jesus' healing ministry, I thought about the physical healing, the blind and the lame and the withered hand, Lazarus, the son of the widow of Nain. But here when he's saying his mission, a lot of what he talks about is emotional healing. What did Jesus say he would do? Oh, I'm going backwards, sorry. What did he do when he was here? He fed the hungry, raised the widow's son, healed the lame, the blind, cured those with mental illness, talked to those who no one else talked to, was compassionate with sinners, wept with those who were sad. But I think he knew that people would be asking the question, where is God? That's a geographic where. It's not just a psychological or a philosophical where. It's a geographical where. Where is God when I'm suffering? And that is why in Matthew 25, he had four parables that had to do with an absent landlord. Because he knew there would be a time when we would think he was absent. And whether it's the faithful and evil servants, the ten virgins, the talents, or the sheep and goats, all of them recognize the fact that for a time he would not be here. So, to go to the Good Samaritan story, and it's interesting that where he proclaims his mission, Luke 10, is just after he sent the 70 disciples out, and it's also the chapter where this story happened, the Good Samaritan. So we know the story, a man was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, was attacked, was left for dead, and then three people walked by. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Priest and Levite actually walked by. The Samaritan stopped and took care of him. So the first thing you think about is, why is he walking down that road if, according to what we read, it was a road where this thing happened all the time? He asked for it. He knew he shouldn't be walking there alone. So whether it is because he needed to arrive quickly, he would make more money, he was in a rush, whatever the reason, he knew that this was a dangerous road and he still chose to walk down that way, was attacked, he asked for it. This was the consequence of a choice. Have you heard this before? Yeah. Where? When we talk about what? Sorry? Her skirt. She asked for it. When we look into very sensitive issues like alcoholism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mental health on the whole, drug, yes. drug abuse and so on, people are very... Mm -hmm. They asked for it. Anything else? My youngest son, when he was three months old, was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Both kidneys, bone marrow, liver, mm. super renal glands. I worked in an Adventist institution, and I kept hearing, mm. especially um, by other people, but eventually two or three came to me and said, when a child this young has cancer, it's a lifestyle issue with the parents. Mm -hmm. You should know better. You asked for it. So when you get a devastating event, which can be a hurricane and can be a diagnosis, whichever one. Our tendency to say it's the person's fault because of a choice is not helpful. And 
God doesn't ask us to ask whose fault it was before we help. If the need is there and the person is suffering, he expects us to help. So where was God when he was attacked? How do you explain that in a lonely road, three people walked by in enough proximity to each other that a man that was left for dead didn't die? How can we explain that? It's a lonely road. How could a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan end up on that road that day when he was attacked? What do you think? What would you have done if you had been the person who was attacked? I would have prayed, right? Mm -hmm. What if they were the answer to his prayer? So he's attacked and he says, Lord, send someone. And God says, I'll send a priest. He's my representative. He sent the priest and the priest walked by. So God says, okay, I'll send a Levite. The Levites were the officers in the church. They were paid to serve. And he sends the Levite, and the Levite walks by. Mm -hmm. So he says, okay, I'll send someone who will actually do something. And he sent the Samaritan. So the answer to this person's prayer when he was suffering and asked, God, where are you? Send someone was three people that God sent. Only the last one helped. As you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. How shall we reveal Christ? I know of no better way than to take hold of the medical missionary work in connection with the ministry. So let's connect that with disaster. In numbers, 90% of U.S. citizens will be exposed to a traumatic event during their lifetimes. Let's do a show of hands. How many of us in this room have been exposed to a traumatic event? Whether that is something that happened in nature, a devastating diagnosis, a death by accident, how many of us have been exposed? Okay. Suicide rates increased 63% in the first year after an earthquake, 31% in the first two years after a hurricane, 14% the first four years after a flood. And one million people become victims of violent crime while at work each year. What this slide tells me is that we need to be ready to support these people. It's, it happens enough that it's a opportunity for us to serve. It doesn't happen few and far between. It happens and we need to be able to serve. How many of you have been through a flood? No one else? This is a select group. How about an earthquake? Oh, wow. <laughs> More in an earthquake than in a flood. Okay. Yep. Yes. And now the East Coast too, what happened this year. So my question is, does your church have a plan? This is one of the pictures of Ground Zero. And as soon as it happened, the wounded were been taken to, they took over. FEMA and Red Cross took over churches that were left intact to be able to take the wounded to find out who had survived, people called to see if they knew where their family members were. If this happened in your neighborhood, in the neighborhood of your church, would your church be ready? Does your church have a plan? Nine Eleven taught us that 59% of people said they would more likely turn to a religious leader for help. 45% would turn to a physician. 40% would turn to a mental health professional. Before 9-11, 43 to 60% of people with emotional problems first turned to religious leaders for help. 94% of Americans say they believe in God. 
and prayer and faith are the most widely used methods of coping with traumatic events. This is an Adventist health study. This is US, okay? So people will come to church. Now what do you consider, what do you think they consider a religious leader? The priest, pastor, any type of clergy. Mm -hmm. um, in one of the books I read, whenever the chaplains, whenever they saw people with a collar, it was, they naturally went to that person to ask for help. Why do you think that the faith community plays such an important role? Before we look at all of these, what do you think? I think because at that moment, especially post-traumatic, mm -hmm. whatever event, there's a sense of, uh, you know, hopelessness. Yes. People searching for, for, for that hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. For hope, for meaning, meaning to what happened. Okay. They Anybody else? Find kind people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're going to find help. Loving help. Yes. Anybody else? There are many places to turn to. Humanism doesn't really have much to offer. Yes. 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 Even with the ones that aren't. Even with the ones that aren't. And all of those things you mentioned are here. And there's some others, for example, churches have been in neighborhoods for a long time. So when something happens, people know they can go there. And the stories that, the messages that are preached from churches every week are things that resonate with people. It's not anything so new. So there's a kind of common language that connects people immediately to that. If they go to a church and somebody says the Good Shepherd, they know, everybody knows what that is. If they say, let's say the Lord's Prayer, they know what that means. So that creates connections at a time when people feel that they need connections. And a lot of time, clergy are trained and have experience in helping in loss. So whether it's an individual thing, they know how to, at least they should know, how to care for people. I remember um, when I was going through medical school that um, we had the morgue, the city morgue on campus in our school. And a weekend, Sunday night, young people left the club late at night, were drunk, crashed. The five young people in the car died. Mm. And one of the ones who died was the only daughter, only child of a woman whose father and mother had died a month before. Oh. So now her only child had died. She had just lost her parents and she's standing Outside, I was sorry, I wasn't going through. I was already teaching there. She was standing in, on our campus crying because she had just lost her only daughter. And the chaplain was in his office hiding out. Yeah. So um, nobody knew what to say. What do you say? So I went up to her and I just hugged her and she just dissolved and said, why is God doing this to me? Mm. What do you say? That wasn't the time for theology of the Trinity or consequences of Lucifer, envy and pride, or it'll all get better when Jesus returns. You'll see her when we rise again, because she was coming out of a club and drunk. We don't know. We don't know. What do you say? And then I went, I was supposed to teach that day. I went into class. A lot of the students were out there and were watching, and they heard what happened. And I spent that hour asking them what they would do. And half of them said, we'd send the chaplain. And I said, the chaplain was hiding out. What do you do? I know that's not the way chaplains usually work. I don't know what happened that day with that particular chaplain, but I know that's not what usually happens. 
It doesn't mean, though, that as health professionals, we can divest ourselves of that responsibility and give it to religious leaders or clergy, because sometimes we're the ones, the first responders. So how do we respond to that question? Another, less stigma, especially in emotional problems. There's places that believe, and sometimes even in our church, and it depends on the population where if you go to a psychologist, you're not trusting God, you're not praying hard enough, you don't have enough faith. So people feel a lot more comfortable going to church with their problems and seeking professional and the church has networks. We know them. We have local networks, regional networks, a global network. When a disaster happens like Haiti, what happened? Loma Linda set up a donation, a fundraising plan, and within weeks, millions of dollars, because people trust the institution, the church, that they're giving money to because they know the money will go to actually help. So those are our reasons why the faith community plays such an important role. Still, we need to have some kind of preparation. It's not enough to say, God loves you. I'm here for you. Disasters are real. So we need, as part of a church, as members of all our individual churches, to make sure that we are prepared to um, deal with these situations. And as we said, survivors of these can be open to broadening their faith. They're more sensitive to listen to God's word at that time because they need it. That's a window that we can't lose. And the church is available there. When others go, the church is still there. So responders come, land in, help, do their grief counseling thing, and leave. The church is still there in that community. At the end of the disaster, there are some positive outcomes. It brings out the best in people. You've seen it, people who never used to talk to each other. When something happens, come together. They get a newfound faith, and they are resilient. Dr. Handyside's talked about resilience in the first breakout session this day. Um, what is resilience? What does it mean to be resilient? We say that a lot about kids. What does it mean? And if no one answers, you can, because you know. <laughs> yes? You rise, you rise above the challenges. You rise above. You bounce back. You bounce back. You can survive and continue to function in spite of whatever it was. You see that a lot in children. Most people will have that capacity. Even though it seems like it's the end of the world, most people have that, where they will bounce back, they will survive, even when it seems like they won't. So when we're talking about disasters, this is a common um, chart that talks about the different phases from the planning migration, response, recovery, evaluation. This is a common chart. A problem sometimes happens when we don't have this. And when the disaster happens, we have to respond, but we haven't planned or prepared. And the relationships are built in this phase. They're not built in this phase. Built. They're forced in this phase, in response and recovery but they're built in the planning. And that's a very good opportunity for us to work with our community in the planning phase and provide a place that they can trust and that says when there's a problem, we are ready. And before there's a problem, we're here. So let's talk about those phases a little more. In the mitigation and preparedness phases, the task of the church is to take on the role of a trusted caregiver. How long does it take to build trust? Sometimes years. 
You have to experience something. Mm -hmm. So does the church have the trust of the community just because of who we are? No. Because we're the church, they trust us? No. I know with government that doesn't happen. <laughs> I worked with government. And when you come into the community, the initial reaction isn't, yay! It's, what do they want now? So in this phase, where we are now, when there isn't anything happening, that's the time when we build trust. We educate ourselves and our houses of worship. How many of you are in a church that has a disaster preparedness plan? Okay. And if 90% of us are going to go through a traumatic event, what does that tell us? We're not prepared. The house of worship is a safe place. Remember the cities of refuge? Montemorelos is now in the center of the war against drugs. When our institutions were formed, they were mostly in the, you know, outside where nothing is, out in the boonies, which is really frustrating when you're a student because there's nothing to do. But that was on purpose. But as the war on drugs has increased in Mexico, what happened is the drug lords made their families live in these places because they're far away. So now that they know that, they have moved from the big cities to attacking each other's families. And in the place where you used to be able, like everybody says the good old days, walk around, leave your house door open, unlock, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't happen anymore. A student was killed right after graduation this year in the, in the nearby town. Um, one of the nurses was kidnapped, hasn't been found. So what used to be a safe town is now the middle of the war. And in Montemorelos' webpage, they have a sign that says Montemorelos, City of Refuge. My brother lives there with his wife. And he says that as long as you're on campus, you feel safe. Okay. There's a thing about feeling safe. Okay, and that is what our churches need to be, feel. So we need to train our staff, a team of caregivers, so that they can be quickly mobilized in a disaster. That sounds easy. It's not. Because disasters usually happen when no one is around who has the keys when the car has no gas left in the tank, where the offices are closed, you can't get to the switch, you, the person who's in charge had a vacation that weekend, that's how it happens. So plans A, B, C, and D need to be in place so that when your first option isn't available, you naturally know what else to do. What about response? The basic support and listening. Our task as a church is to help people people understand and normalize. What do you think normalize means? Normalize. Even if you talk all the time, go ahead and answer. <laughs> what does it mean to normalize? Get back to... Get back to normal. Yeah. Get back to normal. That's what it is. That's so when we are in the response phase and, and people are coming who have suffered from the disaster, just listening, offering to pray, but we ask first and say, do you have friends or family that can help? F letting them feel that things will get back to normal, that's the role the church can play. Recovery in the short term, coping and stress management, caring for the house of worship. There's something powerful about life continuing. If you know that, even if I heard about it recently, um, Elder Finley was talking about that. They went somewhere, the power was shut off, they were supposed to do a series that weekend. They didn't do anything Friday, but by Sabbath, it was back on. People need to know that life continues, sorry, that there will be worship on Sabbath. 
Sometimes we stop. Is, doesn't that happen? Sometimes we stop. We say, we can't have worship this Sabbath because there's no electricity or whatever. That's the wrong way to deal with this. Even if we're in a little room and have to shout about everybody's voice, we need to continue providing what the church always provides. There's something powerful about, yes, something powerful because that's exactly the time when people will come and say, I don't get this. I don't understand why. And that is exactly the time when we can say, I don't either. But let me show you who my God is by what I'm doing. And if we close the doors, where do they go? Offer contextual meaning to disasters. This one's tricky for me. I'm conflicted with this one. Because again, that is not the time people want to necessarily hear about the conflict of the ages. And that this is a result of Satan doing his, because the question always is, if God is more powerful, why did he allow that to happen? How, how do we answer that question? Yes. The stages of grief. And there's a sense of loss that is even more serious, and that is when you feel that you've lost the God you knew. Because who do I trust now? If I can't trust him? Sorry? Who else can you trust? Who else? Yes? Yes. Well, I have, yes. And then it's important for people to understand that Christ experienced it because they feel the sense of loss and they feel guilty because they feel the sense of loss. Say, I know I shouldn't be feeling this way. And knowing that Christ felt it and he actually expressed the words, at least helps you know, well, at least I'm not the only one. And if the Bible says he was without sin, then the question itself is not sinning. It's a search. Okay, so in the short term, that is what we do. In the long term, is how we now redefine our new life. Very few people go back to life the same way it was before, after a disaster. They reprioritize. That is when people who are in jobs they don't like quit if they can. People who cut down on their hours and spend more time with their family. People who had stopped going to church go back people who recommit, that usually happens with disasters. And as a church, we can provide a home for that and at the same time make sure that it doesn't last three months and then you're back to normal. You need to provide then services, activities that will make that change be forever. Okay. So find the meaning and perspective. And this last one here, healing dimensions of forgiveness. There's something special about that one. It's the extra step. What, what do I mean by the extra step? This is what happens without the extra step. There's natural disaster and harm. So this is our, we know, the stress response, fight, flight, freeze, shock, injury, pain, denial. We realize that there's a loss, panic, there's anger, why me, why not? them? It's usually two questions. It's not only just why me, it's why not them. Hiding feelings like sadness, fear, guilt, acting strong or helpless, the two extremes. Confusion, what does this mean? A desire for justice and the, the line between justice and revenge is usually very, very thin. We create an us versus them and that leads to violence or harm against self and others. This happened in 9-11. It happens more when they're man-made disasters because you have someone who's at fault, actually, to blame. And if we don't have that extra step, that's the natural cycle of things. So if we were having this conversation with a group of people who are not faith-based, what do they have to offer a person who's going through this? When the biggest problem is, I can't forgive them. Yes, 
I can't forgive them. This, they did this. I cannot forgive them. And what happened 10 years after 9-11 is still the nightmares, still reliving it, still this hatred anytime a certain kind of person walks down the street or, or you hear a certain accent. What do others have to offer? That's where we come in, though. Because when we offer grace, which is the gift of Christianity to the religious world. No one else has that. In every other religion, you have to work for it and you get what you deserve. When we can offer grace and offer the importance of forgiveness, that is something that we as a church, as a faith-based community, can offer to the disaster preparedness and response plans that no one else has. So we go from the feelings and confusion to accepting, asking why them. Remember this one was why me? Why not them? Why them? And then you start approaching the other person, trying to understand what they're going through. And you choose to forgive. That's the difference in the whole equation of responding to disaster. The forgiveness is something that we can offer to the person that others can't. So in other words, you're taking, taking not focusing on self, but on others. Yes. And isn't that what all this has been about the whole time? Isn't that what Christ has always asked us to do? Not to focus on ourselves, but on others. But when the disaster happens, if we are able to, because in the case of 9-11, it's the terrorists. In the case of an earthquake, the one who built the house and didn't build it the right way, or the FEMA who didn't come, or whatever, there's always someone we can blame. Yes, sir. The Amish demonstrated this very clearly. Yes. Yes. And how did the rest of the country react to they that? They couldn't understand. You've got to be crazy. Yeah, there's absolutely no way. They, they're, they're just not. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a demonstration. Mm -hmm. It's not just the words, but it's the And we know that there is no way we can do that as people unless Christ is living in our hearts. There's no way. If we are missing from the world, who is going to do this? If we aren't prepared, who's going to do it? There's no one else. I, I've had an idea. I've been fiddling with an idea since the earthquake in Japan. And um, I want to talk a little bit about it before I move on more. Let me see. We still have maybe about 10 minutes, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm going to show you what I'm my idea and then I'll go back. We all know that um, the church has the theme of every church a community health center and every member a health minister. Every member a health minister. Those dots are all every dot is a church. This is real. This isn't just Seventh-day Adventist Church. We didn't just throw red on the map wherever it fell. Every dot there is a real Seventh-day Adventist Church. This doesn't include congregations, small groups. These are organized churches that have an address. One of our students actually went through and found the addresses and mapped each one out. Now, what does that, there's so many things we can tell about a map, aren't there? Just by looking, I know I don't like to read. Okay, let me rephrase that. When we're driving somewhere and my husband says, take out the map, that's an, in, when you know there's going to be an argument because I don't like to read maps. Give me the list. The name of the street, turn right. Maps, not good. But there's so many things you can tell if it's not for directions. Just by looking, what can you tell? What do you see? The Sahara Desert is a big desert. 
Okay. <laughs> yes. What else? What do you see? Sorry? You can see the 1040 window. You can very clearly, can't you? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is why we're very happy when um, things are, when we're doing things that will open up that window. And we know as health ministries that's the right hand that opens the door. Okay? What else do you see? The surprise of Australia. Mm hmm. Yeah. What about, let's bring it home. Yeah. So those things they say about the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> the gospel life is just concentrated in certain areas. Yes. Yeah. Look at the islands, though. Look at the islands. Yeah. There's islands where every one out of three people are an Adventist, were an Adventist, or are going to be an Adventist. Yes. So this is the idea I've been fiddling with. It's interesting yes. Yes. With addresses, there's a lot of small groups, small group congregations. Yes. And you would think that by the heavy red in North America that the membership would be a lot more because, and that's not the case. Okay, so we have a lot of buildings. Mm -hmm. I've been toying with this question. Uh, the work began here in America. Yes. Okay, and from thence to what we said, missionaries all over. Yes. So what's happening? You're asking what's, me? Uh, I'm just toying <laughs> with this. What's happening here in, in North America? I don't know what to say. I think that um, I, I've lived in the U.S. for years. I grew up in Central America and Mexico. And it's a different kind of church because the church in Central America is primarily a Dorcas church where you are meeting with the people, tending to their needs, and you bring them in. Whereas here, um, people are a lot more independent. So it's not as easy to reel them in by giving them food and clothes and things like that. Thing with the church in Central America is that it's primarily, and that's changing, but it's, very, it's not a professional church. That's changing but it's still primarily non-professionals who are members. So when you want to reach professionals like physicians and teachers and dentists and engineers, you need to start thinking about the church in a totally different way. So when you bring them into your little church with just, you know, no windows and the little brother and sister getting up and speaking maybe not the proper, you know, and then just, singing out of tune and when you're a professional you're like this oh no that freedom of bringing them in you you don't feel it the same so then what you start having are churches that are for professionals okay okay i can't define what's happening in the united states i can only say what i've seen that's different there. What I do see in my church here is that in my church, there's everybody. You, you, you don't know who you're sitting beside. And you can be sitting beside a university president just as you can be sitting beside the janitor in the same building, okay? That happens at there, but there's not that wide range because most university presidents are not Adventist in the other parts of the world. I don't know. Yes. We do have a prediction in Spirit of Boston that the yes. message is going to come back to the East in greater power than ever before. Mm -hmm. So, and she talks about the fact that it, a lot of that territory had been burned over. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether you could 
say in the United States, we've kind of been burned over, now we get I don't know the rest of it, yeah. but I just do know that she said it's going to return. The mm -hmm. power is going to return. I just know that what the United States Church does financially to support the work of this church around the world is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And that the numbers of baptized Seventh-day Adventist members should not be a cause of sorrow because the work is being done. And sometimes what you can't do with numbers of people gathered under trees, you're doing by supporting financially. And it, uh, that's not to say we don't have any work to do. I know also that there's a lot who aren't members and go every week, every week, and never get formally baptized. I've seen that too, Dr. Hanley says. I think we're Resources. resources to sustain what we have yes. rather than the focus on growth mm -hmm. and just from my own experience we, we, we tend to become internalized rather than looking to the community and that, yes. that's why we wanted every church to be a community yes. health center There's a lot of churches can become health centers but yes. we want them to become community health centers okay and that's an excellent segue he just said I have 10 minutes okay, into the idea I've been fiddling with. And it happened after I heard about the earthquake in Japan earlier this year and saw the amounts of people that were displaced and saw the grief. Um, as I said, I worked in the Caribbean coast in Costa Rica. And in our um, work in disaster preparedness, the Red Cross tried to identify places where they could send supplies before disasters so that the community knew that these places would have the water, the dry clothes, the mattresses, whatever it was that was necessary. For those two or three days before anyone could come in from the outside, the community knew where to go. So I've been fiddling with this idea. And uh, as you know, I, I work in Loma Linda, in the School of Public Health. And I've been trying to figure out what we can do as a school to support this theme. What if we were to certify every Adventist church as a disaster prepared church? That the authorities knew that wherever there's a Seventh-day Adventist church, there's a group of people who are prepared to deal with disasters. There's a place where you can send your supplies before that the community knows when the earthquake or the hurricane or the flooding happens, those people have, they have the water, they have the mattresses, they have the canned foods, but not only that. If we were able also to prepare every church to respond to the emotional and spiritual needs of people in disaster, do you know what that would do? If officially we were known for that, when a disaster happens, you can go to that building. The people there will have answers to your questions. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's not the hunger or the lack of clothes that are the gravest needs when a disaster happens. It's the questions, it's the grief, it's the uncertainty. And to be able to know that if we were known, officially known, that wherever there's a Seventh-day Adventist church, there's a group of people who know how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have, I'm, we're working towards that. Eventually, um, we'll institutionalize it. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that each of us in the churches we are now can't start having the conversation with our leadership about being prepared. Yes? Yes. Yes. And uh, then Canva has for a long time run a ministry, it's a supporting ministry, that will train uh, groups. And he's focused on the young people. Mm -hmm. They have actually done magnificent work. Katrina. Haiti. Haiti. Mm -hmm. what he's willing to train um, groups of people. He mm -hmm. likes to have teams of about 
eight to ten people that are trained yeah. in each church as a team who will know how to respond. And they are certified as first responders. Yes. And they can go into the site. They, they have their badges and the certificate mm -hmm. they wear. And if, if I go in without any certification, they'll move you out of the way. Mm -hmm. They go in as uh, certified first responders. They know they've been trained. Yes. Yes. I'd like to add to that because um, right after 9-11 as a public health nurse, we had no idea really what to do and yet we were supposed to. Yes. And so I became a part of the program that came out of California after the big earthquake, CERT. Yes. CERT as well. They're working together. And yes. This is one that's all over the United States. Mm -hmm. And the one difference between acts, if you can get into both programs, I guess that's my ultimate goal in this um, conversation today is to encourage us to go that route, to step out of our church and actually become part of the community and provide leadership from the community, not from the church necessarily, but from the community. And that takes building. And sometimes the disaster conversation is an excellent place to start. You don't know how to start. How do I go into my community? A lot of times I've heard that question from the church. How do I even start? That's a good place to start because you have to prepare. Everybody knows that. And if you start from the community saying, let's prepare. What are the risks we have? And go and do the survey. And, and if we are prepared to do that and we provide the leadership, that's a way that we can serve from the community. No, my time is running out. So when the question is, where is God when I suffer? Here am I, send me. Those are my two boys, Richard and Anthony. Thank you very much. I don't know if we have time for questions. Well, we've been talking, but is there any other question or comment? Where do you get your, uh, where, where can we get the information you showed us? I can send you that, and I had the references on each slide, so I'd be happy to. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Well, thank you all for coming. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.